for other leaders, other people running businesses or thinking about starting a business. It's just technology. Find the technology that's going to make you the most powerful. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey, leaders, this is Ledge. Welcome back to Leaders of B2B. My guest today is Sean Olds. Funny thing is, we tried to do this once before. My internet went down and everything crashed. This is a little bit of inception for Sean and I, but you have not seen this yet. Sean, welcome to the show. Love that you do an intro of yourself again. And we'll see if we can dive in and have some interesting conversations. Anybody paying attention to the last few episodes knows, like everybody else, we're hot into exploring with AI CEOs right now because so much is happening in the space. It's going to be a great call. Sean, please say hello. Hey, Ledge. A little deja vu, huh? Quick background on myself. Graduated from West Point as a computer science major. I will fully concede, though, the company I have now uh, was coded by very competent people. The languages I programmed in, they now teach in the history of computers class. But graduated, went into the Army, couldn't fall out of airplanes properly, so the Army kicked me out, and that was the late 90s, and I went into the dot-com boom and got my taste for startups. And for 20-plus years now, have been building startups, both domestically and overseas. Took a break after September 11th to return to government service to do counterterrorism work, mostly in Southwest Asia and Africa. But after that, went back to building companies again and have remained focused on that. And about seven years ago, my co-founder, who I met in the U.S. Army Ranger School, pitched me on the idea of Boodle. And it was one of those two good to pass up opportunities. One, the opportunity to work with one of my best friends. And two, to take part in our generation's next revolution, which is artificial intelligence. So jumped in with both feet and we've been moving forward ever since. So talk about Boodle AI, right? There's obviously everything has AI in the name now, and you just drop AI into your pitch deck and you get the mythical check. It's not really like that, but that's what the joke videos are. It's gone so fast into the hype cycle that using jokes about the hype of AI. Meanwhile, I'm talking to CEOs who've been doing this for seven years and are finally like, for God's sake, at least it's in the zeitgeist now and people understand what we're trying to do it and talk about. There's so much interesting stuff there for a business that didn't just spring up because somebody typed, write me a business plan in chat GPT, you know, which is a little too recursive in the matrix for my planning. But tell, tell the story because I think that's important. Absolutely. And the great thing is it is now in the common vocabulary of people. When I used to give speeches on AI before it became cool a year ago with the launch of chat GPT, I'd ask crowds, how many of you have actually used AI in the past week? And very rarely did more than 10% of the hands go up. And then you'd ask the question, okay, for the 90% whose hands are down, did you watch Netflix? Did you use Google Maps? Did you talk to Siri? Did you talk to Alexa? People just didn't realize AI had permeated their lives. They often pictured the bright, shiny head with red eyes coming at them. And that's what we actually fought a lot with because we started in the nonprofit space and then got into the sales and marketing space, but people still feared AI. People still didn't understand AI. And the reality is AI is, is hard in many cases. And that was one of the great things with the advent of ChatGPT and Bard and Claude and all these others is that it gave a very easy way for people to interact with AI in a way that they've never been able to do before. And so now people without a computer science degree, without a data science degree, 
who are working a variety of different jobs can now use AI to help make their work life and their personal life better. And so with Boodle AI, what we tried to focus on was defining people's affinities towards causes or towards products, and then helping companies or nonprofits find their best donors or their best customers using predictive analytics. With the advent of generative AI, we're able to take those predictive analytics that are powered by AI, put a generative AI interface on them. And now instead of people needing to be able to figure out how to use an interface like our legacy one, now all they need to do is take the question they have in their mind, put it onto a keyboard, and then let generative AI go through, in our case, 35 billion proprietary insights on how people donate or consume in this country to get the exact answer they need as they need it. In that interface layer of generative AI is, I think what people were trying to do for years, oh, I'll stick a bot in front of it. And of course, it's completely useless. And it was all designed. They were decision trees. And you kind of, as long as you put an answer that it knew what to do with, then it wasn't going to fall off the arrow to nowhere in the flowchart. And now we're embodying these with more ability to communicate in human natural language terms, which frankly is how people think. So the big challenge with 20 years ago, I was working in big data and, and then it was machine learning and data warehouses and data lakes and all these things that companies were becoming able to do. And we quickly realized it's really easy to put uh, terabytes of data into a thing. It's not so easy to figure out then how to make all that data useful. Yeah, that there was in fact no way to organize all that qualitative data. So then we had taxonomies and we're trying to figure out like you could tag the stuff, ETLs would fall over and it's just like a huge pain. There was an enormous amount of work that came before this without installing then this uh, human acting interface layer. And I think that's the part that is really going to make a huge difference that it now gives us access to all the stuff that we are toiling with anyway, but with no good way to use it. So you did the AI thing. It was crazy seven years ago. As an entrepreneur, I'm guessing that you've done lots of crazy things that other people weren't ready for at the time. And timing is everything, right? I can look at my pile of unexecuted ideas from 25 years ago, like, damn it, I invented that. And they are worth like a billion dollars now. But I, you know, I invented it in my brain and I didn't actually do anything. As somebody who's done a bunch of startups and had successes and you've got a, a list of things you invest in. And I think like you've painted that picture of, hey, a lot of people want to be Sean when they grow up. So then I'm always interested in like lessons learned along the way there and about timing and about making decisions. Because I also know that waiting for the snake ice to catch up is, is painful and expensive also. <laughs> and timing really matters. So yeah, just tell some stories along that path because what appears on LinkedIn and in the way you write your bio later, because you have to, isn't always the story. You seem like a guy that'll tell me the truth. No, no, fair enough. First, I, I wouldn't say anybody wants to grow up to be me. As with everybody, I heard an adage once that we'll we put the group, put all of our problems into the center. We would pick out our own problems and walk away. And I think that's true. But as you look at it, one of the, one of the funny things you talked about building things for people as, as they need it. We actually got told at the end of last year, we had several suitors looking to buy us. And one of the CEOs of one of the companies that was looking said, most people try to skate to where the puck is coming to. You skated, unfortunately, to where the puck's going to be in three years. And, and it was true. We had, when we launched, we were just three years too early. 
Uh, generative AI was our saving grace. It was, and then again, that's timing. But generative AI gave us the ability to take everything we'd invested over seven years, plus an amazing team, and combine that with the power of generative AI to deliver beyond, far beyond fundraising teams and sales and marketing teams to people of all sorts. And that's been the great thing is we launched our alpha about a month and a half ago. It's seeing how people use this. We have people using this for Bible study. We have people using this for bedtime stories at night, not just bedtime stories, but the art that goes with it. We have people using this for coloring books. When you start to see the way people use it, one of the greatest things of being an entrepreneur is when your customer teaches you how to use your own platform. And they start to evolve it for you and what can be done and then share that with their ecosystem of friends. As far as lessons learned, uh, I think one of the biggest lessons learned always is just perseverance. You're going to you're going to get knocked down. And I had the good fortune of, as I said, attending West Point. Your whole plebe year is about being knocked down. The kids who matriculate into West Point were first in their class. They were football captain. They were Eagle Scouts, they were all these wonderful things in high school or coming out of the military. And it's all about breaking them down and building them back up again. And then you graduate from West Point, you think you're top of the world, and all of a sudden you're this lowly second lieutenant. And so you start back all over again. One of the wonderful things, my formative years was built with being built up and being knocked back down again. And so going into startups, there's a lot of that. People who rise to become paper millionaires and then all of a sudden have nothing. But it's that ability to pick yourself back up and understand who in your network, who in your ecosystem are the people you can rely on to help you do that. And I've been very fortunate through the years to have a very strong ecosystem of people that I could reach out to as I either started that next opportunity or needed help where I was at that bridge with that opportunity I was in. And but for that external help, probably would have failed. I can listen back to some times where I... I can remember conversations like if I had listened to that mentor who sat me down with the best of intentions and told me a thing and I was like, nah, nah I got this. And like, I lost like a million dollars. You know, you can kind of like places I might go back and at least try the other path. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of those mentors, advisors. And it sounds like you've done a good job building and keeping those relationships. I do find that's a common thread. Now I haven't talked to hundreds of CEOs and founders and people in all different ilks of B2B, they're later on, they can look back and say, I, I collected the right tribe of people, you know, on me and I kept them and I nurtured those relationships. And I thoughtfully, eventually thoughtfully, sometimes by accident, ended up with a group of people that I could call for each type of issue who then could give me that feedback that would allow me to make better less costly errors. And you have to cultivate that. One of the things I do, it pulls me away from family, but I typically on almost every trip I do, I will spend an extra half day or day in the city I'm going to. And I go on LinkedIn and I find out who I know there. And then I schedule coffees, lunches, breakfast, dinners, whatever. And what's amazing is you find out you're so busy in your life, you don't realize there are other people who can actually be helpful to you or that you can be helpful to. And when you take that extra 12 hours in a day and fly home a little bit later and help someone down the road, that help comes back to you. Or you find out many a times I'll sit in a conversation and someone's, I didn't realize this is what you're doing. If this is what you're doing, you need to talk to these three people. And had I flown home early and just focused on being very insular on my work, I never would have had that opportunity put in front of me. 
we used to just call that the effort of networking. And now it, it seems to be a lost art. Like you don't hear people talking about it as much. And I can remember times where I did a little bit too much of that. It's like, well, you can only have eight coffees in a day and eventually you need to make some money. But I can look back and go, why was that important? And establishing my own credibility and on having those relationships. And also, I think networking, not dissimilar to hosting a podcast, I can say the biggest thing that has been valuable to me is being able to articulate repeatedly my own story. That in fact, these are reps that you could do and build that muscle and stop maybe buying your own BS. Because if you sit by yourself all the time, you can sell yourself what you're doing and why it's such a great idea while completely ignoring the macro landscape that tells you it's in fact not time or it's not a good idea at all. <laughs> Self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> How do you thread the needle on your experience? And you talked about you speak at things and you've got this footprint of, hey, I advise and mentor and I'm on boards and I'm an investor. Do you manage that personal pie, right? There's still only 100% of Sean and a lot of it's not work. So I find that balance is interesting to to dig into for people who have a million things that are labeled still going to the present on their LinkedIn. So I will tell you, I'm 50 and I've never gone a solid month where I've gotten the balance right. I'll get weeks where I get it right. And for me, the big balance is family work and physical. If I don't work out, I, I don't stay mentally healthy as well. And so, but it's inevitable. You'll get into a deadline and all of a sudden you missed a couple of workouts. Last week, I was traveling with my kids and my wife couldn't come with us and missed a whole bunch of workouts. Um, now, I got a lot more family time, but it wasn't the right balance. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out how to make that balance work. And I think it's just something that you constantly have to strive for if you're in an entrepreneurial type job. I know a lot of people who work kind of conventional nine to five jobs, and they're able to do it better because they can have a very set schedule. Hey, I'm going to go work out in the morning. I'll be home at five o'clock. I've got all evening with the family. I don't work on weekends. And so they've got that nice spread there. As an entrepreneur, you're always going to have something come up. You're going to have that investor who calls and needs to talk to you right away. You're going to have something that breaks in the product and you need to fix it right away. And at the time, you've just got to readjust your priorities. And as you said, thread the needle for that point in time and then step back and be able to say, okay, how do I get back into the rhythm that's right for me, for my family, for my job and right for what I need? I'm one who is susceptible to a single break in routine sets me back a lot more. Like my ability to create habits that are not healthy is far greater than the one of maintaining the habit of looking, actually opening my journal instead of looking at it on the bed table every night or not hanging clothes on my elliptical machine instead actually using it. And I'm hypersensitive to the idea that like don't break a good routine because you won't get back to it. And I, I don't know if that's my own personal limitation or just acknowledging that I'm human, but I know this to be true. <laughs> and, and everybody has their own way of doing what they need. I think the most important thing is knowing what is a good habit and then constantly striving for it. No one's perfect, but if you understand where you need to go directionally, when you do get thrown off, you know how to get the clothes back into the closet and off the elliptical so you can actually use it. Do you know any people that in your travels, this is an interesting question, just occurred to me who absolutely in the long term treat their body like garbage and focus only on 
work and seem to achieve more in a durable fashion? Do you ever encounter folks that kind of break that? Under 50? Absolutely. Under 40 all the time. Our bodies are much more resilient at that point. But if you look at a lot of the very successful people in life, they may not be Arnold Schwarzenegger in shape, um, but his life was about staying in shape. So it was a little bit different. But if you look at some of the most successful people, they've been able to find that balance. And I bet if you talk to every single one of them, they would tell you they lost the balance at some point, but they found a way back to it. But I think especially as people get older, and, and I was surprised when we started Boodle, I was 43 at the time. And at the time, the average age of a startup entrepreneur was 46, which kind of shocked me. I always thought it was going to be in the 20 range, but they're older. And I think a lot of it is those older people have gotten to a point in their life where they understand what is right. They know that going into doing something entrepreneurial is going to probably force them off that, but they at least have a muscle memory built there that they can move back to. Yeah, I can say there's a, a clear trend line of people who were endurance athletes or went through some type of that military type of development that you talked about, the hard training and all those things. There's something about that early training. If you spent your teens and twenties getting the, the crap beat out of you by a, a coach where you just had to drag your butt up off the ground and, and keep going after you threw up, there, there is something there that you can't have just sort of program computers your whole life or not talk to anybody or it's like there's a endurance that seems to apply to entrepreneurship. And I'll also say, you know, I say the starting businesses is hard, but not nearly as hard as parenting. So it, <laughs> that should have added a layer of all kinds of wisdom that you can bring along and along that balance front. Yes. You do see a lot of technical founders who end up passing the baton on to someone who ends up, as you said, parenting the company and shepherding along to its future path. Yeah, absolutely. So go back to the business. We talked a little bit off mic, and this is interesting. I, I had remarked that I went to Boodle AI and just reading about the company and y'all are in a, a transition point and you alluded to that, hey, we weren't sure what the company was going to be doing. And the advent of Gen AI allowed us to retrench and develop a new platform, which is going to release soon. And then we can get our salespeople back in business there. And I have to think that's a little bit scary and the ability to go, we're going to turn everything off and if not pivot, redesign around a new messaging and not sell. Like what? You're not going to sell. Well, then you're fully in product mode for a while and maybe existing customers are paying the bills. But I suspect a lot of people are facing that now that we've had a paradigm shift. It's a real paradigm shift. It's not NFTs or so other sort of flash in the pan or clubhouse or whatever, but it, it, this is a real thing and you had to make a decision. So how did that go? Yeah, no, I mean, as if a successful entrepreneur needs to be able to understand when the business isn't going to move forward or how it can actually move forward. One of the single best angel investments my wife and I have ever made was into a company many years ago was called TroopSwap when we invested in it. And the CEO recognized it wasn't going to grow in the way he thought it was going to grow. But as part of what he was doing, TroopSwap was basically a Groupon for the military because Ritz-Carlton would never put their rooms on Groupon because it degrades the brand. But Ritz-Carlton is happy to give veterans and military people discounts. 
And so idea was there. But as Groupon started to decline after I made my investment, we realized Coopsoft was probably going to follow and needed to find another path. Well, one of the things Blake Hall is the CEO over there, one of the things he consistently got asked was, wait a minute, how do we know that Sean Olds is actually a veteran? Back then, 10 years ago, there was no way to do online identity verification. And so he evolved that company into ID.me, which is now a unicorn doing extremely well, has identity verification for a bunch of states, a bunch of different areas. And taking a page out of that book, when we got to the beginning of the year and understood the power of generative AI, we actually have gone through two evolutions in less than six months. Because our first evolution was to say, hey, we don't want any distractions. We're still going to service our legacy customers, but we're going to quit selling our legacy platform so we can focus on this new, what we've built plus generative AI to create a one plus one equals three opportunity. And it was driven from an interview that Reed Hoffman did with Sam Altman, where Sam Altman opined that the next frontier after large language models, the chat GPTs, the Anthropics and the Bards was going to be what he termed middle layer AI companies. So companies that had proprietary data and proprietary insights that they could put on top of an LLM to supercharge an industry or vertical. And as we looked at it, we had spent seven years and millions of dollars building 35 billion proprietary insights on how people consume and donate. And so we said, great, we're going to be a middle layer AI. And I have a great development team who in less than a month put an alpha together. We went out beating our chest that we were the first middle layer AI in the nonprofit space. And one of the first for sales and marketing teams. And what we found out in our alpha, people don't care if you're first, second, third, they don't care if you're the strongest. What they cared about was, do I get what I need out of this? And then as we scratched the surface a little bit more and really started to ask people about their experience with generative AI, they found it inconvenient. They found it very siloed. If they wanted to use MidJourney and ChatGPT and Bard, they had three Chrome windows open. They found that it wasn't easy to save work and it was impossible to save work across different platforms. One of the most amazing things, Ledge, was I would talk to tech savvy, business savvy, whatever savvy you want to put on it, smart people who had used it for a couple of days and then walked away because discovery is hard. It's hard for people to understand how to use generative AI. And then finally, we as humans, we collaborate. I know you said we people have moved away from the networking, but at the end of the day, whether we do it from afar or in an office, we still work with people. We find people who accentuate our weaknesses and we gravitate to people whose weaknesses we can help with, right? None of these AIs talk to each other. They all work separately from each other. And so what we realized was we wanted to build a platform where you could streamline all of your generative AI in one user interface, in one place. And so with BoodleBox, which we've launched in alpha and will launch in Q4 fully to the public, is an ability to have your ChatGPT debate barred and then have MidJourney build uh, pictures of whatever comes out of that, but all in one conversation where the context is all shared, and then go a step further and use a variety of these middle layer AI agents that are forming, the, the thousands of them that are coming online now, out of a marketplace to add to the conversation, to accentuate the conversation even further. Yeah. And I think Sam Altman was right that, you know, that type of path is you always end up in the spot where the thing we build is so complicated that people don't know how to use it. I need an interface on top of that. Then I need to segment that into places that I can actually use it for my own purposes because the generalized 
LLM is like, just blow your mind super cool. And then you don't know what to do with it. So I want my data in there. And it's very broad, but about an inch deep. And if you want to dig into your area, your company, and the big problem right now is companies are afraid their PII is going to get out there. And so one of the good fortunes we have, because we built what we built over seven years, is we can do everything behind a firewall. We've built a trust and safety layer so companies can ingest their own data, know that it's not getting or seeping out or being used to train any other models, but still leverage all the power of generative AI with their data enhancing it. Right. Now, do you have to go ahead and in that case, train their own version of the LLM, like sandbox it off from the rest? How does... How does that actually work where a company can get all their data into a thing and not have it be polluted by the outside and not contribute to the outside? There's two ways we can go about it. One is you can anonymize data. If the data itself is not what you need the generative AI to analyze or the LLM to analyze, you can anonymize it and send it over. What we find most companies want to do is they just want their own LLM. So you leverage one of the open source LLMs. You put it, as you said, into its own sandbox behind their own firewall, and then you're able to work with them from there. And what's the change management challenge there, right? Because you still have to train all the people how to essentially behave in this new paradigm. You can ask it natural language questions, but we also all know that prompt engineering is becoming a real thing. And as I start to read better and better prompts, they approximate more and more pseudocode. That, oh, look, it has variables and look, it has assumptions baked in and I got to feed it this, I got to feed it that. It, it is definitely a new language. It's not just natural language. No, you nailed it. One of the, I mentioned before, you get a lot of these very business savvy, tech savvy people who get on. And in our alpha, we tell people, we're going to look at your prompts. We don't understand it. We purposely recruited about 10% of the people, the people who self-reported they've never used generative AI. And when you watch the prompts, they sit down for five minutes. They do four to eight of them. I, I use prompts and air quotes because they're not prompts, they're Google searches. And if you put a Google search into generative AI, it gives you bad results. If you take a person who's very busy in their day, and they took five minutes and they got eight bad results, they're not going to delve any further. And so that gets to the discovery phase I spoke about. So two of the things we do in our platform, one is as soon as you get into the platform, there's a feed. There's a feed of every public prompt that has been done. And so you can start to see what's being done. And then as you start prompting about things, the feed gets smart and fills with prompts about what you've already been prompting about so that you can understand what are successful prompts, what do they look like, and learn very quickly rather than trying to have to do a bunch of research to figure out where it comes from. The other thing we'll do, though, is what we set up are boxes for people. So person has a prompt they've used, they can save it. We call a save prompt boodle. They put their boodle into their boodle box, and if they make those boxes public, other people can see it and benefit from it. And so people are already creating fitness boxes, legal boxes, accounting boxes, fundraising boxes, bedtime story boxes, all the different story, all the different things that people might need to do in their lives. And now instead of me having to sit down and just from scratch, figure out what a prompt might look like, I can go to the bedtime story box and find the six really good prompts that work well for nine-year-old little girls like my daughter, and then hop right over, type one of those prompts in and get a new story for her. You're talking about total you're sort of got, you got B2C bedtime story sort of stuff that is hard to imagine anybody really ever paying for. And then you've got like in-depth business applications, which are enterprise B2B type sales. How have you 
thought about being all things to all people is also one of the kiss of death of marketing because you can't explain how it fits a particular niche then. But you do have a tool then that's useful for all types of things. We all know in entrepreneur world that don't build the tool that can do all the things because you can't sell it to all the people. So like, how are you thinking about segmenting that off so that you don't have to mangle your marketing message? Our premise is that every good enterprise platform is built upon knowledge, happy knowledge workers who enjoy using it. And given how fast paced things are moving, we wanted to get this out to individual knowledge workers to make sure we nail that. Because we have been around seven years, we're very fortunate that we've got some good partners. So we already have a CRM that's got about 25,000 organizations on it, a large fundraising platform, and a consulting firm that's about 30 years old that all want to help us build the enterprise version of this over Q4 so we can launch that in Q1. But what we're trying to solve is one problem. It's having a singular place to accomplish all your generative AI needs. Pinterest didn't solve a problem for one niche of people. Dropbox didn't solve a problem for one niche of people. They solved a storage issue for all niches of people. And so we're trying to solve the ability to use generative AI in one place for as many people that want to be able to do that. So it's the workshop with all the tools, and it also helps you automatically pick the right tool to solve the problem. So you aren't wailing away on a screw with your hammer, so to speak, which happens all the time with point solutions for there's you look at the stack, even for a small company doing a million dollars, forget about billion plus dollar companies, the stack of point solutions in SaaS that you get charged for on a monthly basis. And it's always like, does anybody know what that is? And do we need to keep paying for that? And I think that point solution middleware problem, it's just it haunts <laughs> you know, every business because you want the best of breed. But then you have this like massive integration problem. Potentially this type of solution can help take that heuristic decision-making off the table and just go, look, we have the right solutions at the right time. And this thing is now smart enough to choose the right one to get the input from. And this is one of the things is we talk to CISOs of large corporations, the two biggest things they deal with, one is security. And we satisfy that with the trust and safety layer. But the other thing they run into is, well, it seems every month one company is outpacing the other, right? Bard announces something that's going to put OpenAI and Anthropic out of business. And then next month, Anthropic is going to put OpenAI and Bard out of business. And so the CISO is like, well, if I make a decision to lock into one and they're not the one, now I got to go do a whole new integration. By being able to integrate with Box, what they're able to do is know that we're bringing all these integrations together. So it's one integration, doesn't matter who ends up the winner or who ends up most dominant or delivers the best. Or if 18 months from now, someone delivers something just perfectly suited for their business, it'll be integrated into our platform so that they can tap into it through that integration they've already done. How are you choosing which tools make the threshold for integration? Is it based on customer requests or some kind of like priority roadmap? I mean, you could go on to product hunt and spend the rest of your life integrating everything that ran up the charts, but you have to have some kind of decision-making around which things are valuable to integrate and which are just not going to make it. How do you do that? I mean, the hope is, is we open the marketplace in Q4. People are going to come to it and put their own things in. Now we've gone out and we're in the process of recruiting about a hundred products and those middle layer agents that we're recruiting and helping to get in there. And we're doing a lot of the work to get them in there. 
they're being recruited because our alpha testers told us they want it. They told us, oh, if I had this information, that'd be much more valuable. If I had this intel, that would be great. And so going out and talking to those providers and trying to get them into the platform is where our focus is. Once we get a good base of people, the marketplace should fill itself. And then it's a typical marketplace. People are going to come onto our platform and decide, I like that, I don't like that, and they'll select what they need. Right, check the boxes on the things I want. And anybody that's thinking about a marketplace business model, that mechanism there is basically saying, the only way to do a marketplace is to subsidize the supply. And what's nice is like from a, a legacy business and client and relationship standpoint, you have demand that is telling you if you're going to have to subsidize supply to make your marketplace viable so that other people want to buy from it, at least start with the ones that we like. That demand over time being built from an audience that was doing other things and now layering on top of that, that's a unique position that a new marketplace is never in and you can spend an outrageous amount of money subsidizing the supply and burn up all your VC and then be called a ride sharing app. And, <laughs> but it's not profitable at all. <laughs> and that's an interesting thing that, that I run into a lot. It's marketplaces and dual-sided business models or network-based business models. They're only valuable when everybody uses it. So you do have the problem of who bought the first fax machine and what did they do with it? And which I guess dates us now because probably people don't even know what a fax machine is anymore. So you talked about personal balance. You talked about the business and the constructs of all those things. When you pull all that together and go, wow, we just made a big pivot and like we're focusing on a certain development and we need to do now go to market. What does the next couple of years look like? Because that is a big turning point, a big pivot in the business. I'm focused on the next couple of months right now because we, we've got you know, the market's going to tell what the next couple of years looks like. If you had asked Anybody that question where we're in October, you ask anybody that question a year ago, OpenAI hadn't launched ChatGPT yet. No one had generative AI in their business plans for their future. And now every major company is talking about it. McKinsey announced they launched their own internal one and companies across the board. We're doing an MA round right now. And it's been interesting. We've had venture capitalists who have turned us down because we don't fit their thesis, but then ask us, hey, but can we have access to your platform? So it's validating that the platform is needed, but a year ago, none of those VCs had generative AI built into their one-year plan. So our next couple of quarters is probably as far out as I would look right now and feel comfortable saying this is where we're going. And our next couple of quarters is getting this launched to the individual knowledge user next month and nailing it, and then building out over Q4 the enterprise version of this and getting that launched in Q1 and really nailing that. And then seeing what happens in the market, seeing what new middle layer AI comes up, seeing what the LLMs decide to do and, and how they further train or what new ones launch, and then seeing how the marketplace fills out and what that demand is. As I mentioned earlier, what are our customers, our future customers going to teach us? How are they going to come to us and tell us we could be doing better for them and for a large segment of society? And there are interesting things out there. We've been very, I mentioned before, we've been very big in the nonprofit space. One of our best nonprofit customers, when I showed her what we're doing, she says, oh, you've got to have a Dungeons and Dragons box. And I'm like, does that still exist? And she opened me up to forms of millions of people who still play Dungeons and Dragons. And this is actually really well suited for it. And so we will have a Dungeons and Dragons box. when we So what are you going to have like, enterprise pricing models and consumer at the same time. Your sort of Dungeon Dragons group isn't going to pay the same as what the $30 billion company will. Absolutely. So 
On the consumer side, we'll have a freemium version, just like all of large language models do. It'll be very basic like they are. And then we'll have what we call Boodle Beyond, which will get you into the ability to bring in your own data securely, bring in your documents securely, and then open you up to the entire marketplace where you can then make decisions what out of the marketplace you need to do what you need. And so there are middle layer companies around Dungeons and Dragons that are being built. And so if someone wants to buy the Dungeons and Dragons bot for $5.99 a month so it can talk to Claude and also talk to Midjourney and be able to do whatever they would like to get done, a consumer would be able to come in and do that for a nominal fee a month. On the flip side, for the enterprises that want to have their own bespoke enterprise, I won't say bespoke, but their own enterprise version that's behind their own firewall, they'll have their own enterprise pricing that they'll be able to do that as well. You have a, a really neat thing, and I think this type of business lends itself to a next level of customer discovery because when every interaction with your end user customer is them typing what they want into a little box, that's a whole lot of awesome data. <laughs> that's what people actually want. And, and that I can't think of another case where that really happened on a broad enough scale to make like discernible inference from it. Ledge, this is one of the conversations we've been having with a lot of companies. I mean, the prompt data, we tell people in our alpha, we are associating your prompts with you when we are reading them. Our plan is that once we launch, much like what Google claims they do, we will see all the prompts. We just won't know Ledge is the one who actually did the prompt. But for a company, if they find that their employees are constantly asking about something that they can't get a hold of inside, if all of a sudden a group of people are asking about HR issues, there's a variety of things that could prompt that could come up that are going to be invaluable information for corporations to be able to get employees what they need or circumvent something that could become a really big issue. And look at that. You're going to have all kinds of data to all the HR providers are really going to be interested in who's asking for a particular service. <laughs> so, but that didn't occur to you at all. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you bringing it up, Ledge. I just took a note. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Sean, this is great. I just, I love this journey and the insights and thank you so much for tolerating seven years of this to get us to this point, because this is super cool. And I know what that slog is when things aren't hitting. The great co-founder and an absolutely amazing team. So I've been fortunate. I wouldn't have yeah. had it any other way. Yeah. Awesome. Before I let you go, I always have a guest. Go, okay. And maybe this has something to do with AI. Maybe it doesn't. From your seat as a B2B leader at this time in your unique context, what should be on the radar of everybody else who's listening from a standpoint of, of their leadership role? That Maybe you know about something that everybody else doesn't know about just because you're the only one who's doing you. What should be on that radar? No, I mean, generative AI is too easy of an answer. So, you know, for other leaders, other people running businesses or thinking about starting a business, it's just technology. Find the technology that's going to make you the most powerful. One of the things I really missed in my first two years of running the business was just reading. I read every day, but I was reading Medium and Fortune and blog postings and everything else. It was professionally helpful, but I couldn't just have time to sit down with a book. And I talked about the balance earlier. I missed that. And it was one of my investors who turned me on to Audible. I'd, I'd not seen Audible before. And now I'm able to tear through at least a, a one or two books a month whether it's when I'm on the shuttle bus at the airport, waiting to take off, standing in line at Starbucks, and you can pick up 5, 10, 15 minutes here. And for me, it's fulfilling. I still miss that sitting down and holding a book and reading and whatever else, but I don't miss 
either learning new things or just taking that brain break of listening to a fiction book and being able just to turn off for a few minutes and disconnect for a little while. So that for me was a big thing, but there's all sorts of other technologies out there that'll be invaluable to people. And they just need to find the ones that are going to allow them to be the most productive for themselves and their teams. I love the fiction book thing. Yeah. Jump between. I I go through, I'm on the premium audible plan and I often have to buy more credits. And I do, I jump between sort of leadership, self-help business. And then, but no, I need a 30 hour fiction book that's about something else because it just jogs that brain in a different way. So I also highly recommend everybody give more and more of their money to Amazon and get Audible. But there also are many free versions of audiobooks if you like to jump through some hoops. Back on the AI train, Project Gutenberg and Microsoft now are using AI voices to read all the books that are on the the shelf in in the public domain. That's going to be really cool too. Sean, thank you. Super fun conversation. Any Anybody that's out there, they resonate, hey, I got to talk to this guy or his company. What are the right channels to do that? Easiest thing is my email or LinkedIn. Sean Olds on LinkedIn and Sean, S-H-A-W-N at Boodle, B-D-L-E dot A-I. All right. Fantastic. Thanks for coming out. Really appreciate the insights. Ledge, thanks for having me today. Great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.